This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. I'm afraid the reading this morning is actually the opposite of what you were telling us. <laughs> Therefore, is from Jeremiah 2. Therefore, once more I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? Um, I've lost the place. Oh, but my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become plunder? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the people of Memphis and Thapanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself? by forsaking the Lord your God, where he led you in the way. What then do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you, and your apostasies will convict you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you says the Lord God of hosts. Here ends the reading. The reading is from John 4, 1 to 10. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sicha, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here endeth the reading. Thanks be to God. It'd be terrific if you had that reading open in front of you from John chapter 4. And the page number is in our bulletin there. Uh, we're beginning today a series on this great story, uh, this great encounter that Jesus had with uh, a woman from Samaria. So let's pray and ask for his help. 
Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we do ask your, your blessing on us today that you would give us your grace, that we would not only hear what you have to say, but that we would live it out, that it would be a reality in our lives. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now our land, you might be very aware, has a gigantic thirst. Australians, of all people, know how precious that water is. I remember going to visit some relatives in the Czech Republic and um, back in the 2007, it was the midst of the last drought, and they were doing the washing up under a flowing tap. I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, what a waste of water. They said, this land is made of water. It rains all the time here. Of course, we would never think of doing that. We live in a dry land and we are currently in the grip of a severe drought. According to the Bureau of Meteorology, the 32 months from January 2017 to August 2019 were the driest 32 months ever recorded, some 34% below average for the whole of New South Wales. But the numbers don't really depict what it's like to experience the reality of drought. Without water, which should flow freely from the sky, plants and animals just can't live. And we who depend on them can't live either. A friend of mine who works as a chaplain in a girls' school in Tamworth told me how traumatised the girls were when they came back to school after last winter, having seen their parents had to shoot their own stock. Another minister friend of mine uh, in the south of New South Wales told me of a number of suicides and suspected suicides in his local community that he's had to attend to and officiate at. In the end, despite us thinking that we can organise and mechanise the world, there's not a lot we can really do but pray for rain to fall on our parched land. We in the computerised city expect there to be an engineering solution, but as beautiful day succeeds to beautiful day, our land is getting drier and drier and deader and deader. But we're also experiencing another kind of thirst. It's a spiritual drought. Just as with our physical thirst, we human beings have a spiritual thirst which means that you and I have a deep longing for significance and purpose, to know who we really are and what we're really for. We do want to do more than just survive. We want to thrive, take away meaning, and we wither like a plant with no water. But where will we find satisfaction for our spiritual longings? What wells can we dig that will bring us to the spiritual water we need to drink. In that reading from Jeremiah we heard, we heard that the people of Israel had been digging shallow cisterns, shallow wells that weren't really holding any water and not seeking to have their thirst satisfied from the true source of satisfaction. And in secular Australia, we've got four shallow wells that we've dug for ourselves. And they are pleasure, work, romance and spirituality. All good things in and of themselves. But they're wells that do not hold spiritual water. What do I mean? Well, first of all, we think the aim of our existence is to maximise our pleasure. Pleasure will bring us meaning, will satisfy us. So we obsess about food. Are we not a completely food-obsessed culture? We Instagram it. We, we 
talk endlessly about where we can find the best sort of kale. And that kind of, you know, on, on and on we go about diets. We, we are obsessed with travel as the path to fulfillment. We obsess about entertainment. We want to collect experiences that will define us and fulfill us. We have the default assumption that the pleasurable life will be the meaningful life. Secondly, we try to find satisfaction in our work. Work has completely taken over who we are in the 21st century. We identify ourselves by our careers. We spend ourselves, spend ourselves, worshipping at its shrine. We know this because of the devastating impact of someone's unemployment. What, it, what it's like to lose work is terrible. It's an existential crisis. Retirement is extremely difficult for people to face because of the loss of work as a, as a source of spiritual hope and satisfaction. Thirdly, romance. You and I hope to find our longings met in an intimate relationship. We dream that finding our soulmate will lead to our deepest needs being met. I find this when I do when we prepare couples for marriage, uh, that that is their expectation, that they have finally found the soulmate, that this other person will be their lover, their friend, their counsellor, their advocate, and hopefully also their secretary all at once. And fourthly, a lot of people have realised that these first three paths to fulfilment don't work. So they've turned to what we might call spirituality. Now, it's a bit vague. It's a bit hard to know what people mean when they say, I'm pursuing spirituality or I'm a spiritual person. But it often involves self-help. It involves westernising Eastern spiritual practices and adapting them to our consumer culture. Somehow, we imagine that we will find in us a source that transcends us, something bigger than us, without realising what a contradiction that in fact is. Now we could say all sorts of things about each of these, but there's two things to observe about them in general. And one of, one of those is that each of these, pleasure, work, romance and spirituality, is a form of devotion or worship. Just as the Israelites, when they dug other cisterns that held no water, were worshipping other gods, so we worship pleasure, work, romance, and spirituality. These are our idols. These, we hope, will slake the thirsts of our souls. And so in doing, doing this, we give ourselves to this something or someone. We worship these things. In an article in The Atlantic this week, the American Journal, uh, a millennial journalist, a young man, Derek Thompson, said that people today, like him, are shopping a la carte for meaning, community and routine. I like that, shopping, because we think we can shop for everything, including our spiritual selves, to fill a faith-shaped void. Their politics is religion. Their work is a religion. Their spin class is a church. But here's the second thing. These things do not work. They do not deliver on what we think they will. They are not worthy of our worship, and they do not satisfy our souls. They turn out to be created things, just as we are created things. 
And to worship them is like putting salt water on a parched land. Pleasure, work, romance, and spirituality are wonderful, but do not meet our deepest needs. They cannot be what you and I want them to be. Only the true God can satisfy our spiritual thirst. Now, this is the backdrop for the story of the woman at the well, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks. It's one of my favorite stories from the Bible, from the, Bible, from the Gospels. Uh, it's also the source of one of the baddest, um, the, one of the worst Bible jokes. Uh, who was the fattest woman in the Bible? The woman of some area. Been working on that all week. Uh, the Samaritan woman, though, is uh, not that, of course. She's a wonderful character. She's a bit sassy, quite a bit spirited. She's a person from a time far off and a place far away, but you know, she's very contemporary. She's a person with a deep hunger in her, a thirst. She's looked for satisfaction all her life and hasn't found it. Her idols, we will discover, have been her relationships with men and her spiritual identity. But when she meets Jesus, she finds something else again. The story begins with a thirst. It's, it's Jesus' thirst. Now, he's had to make a long journey from Judea back up north to his home country. But that's taken him through some hostile territory, through Samaria. Now, this piece of territory had a long history in Israel. It had been part of the original kingdom of Israel. And uh, the particular place that Jesus goes to, the town of Sychar, um, that had a, a, an area in it that the great patriarch Jacob, the son of, 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 um, of Isaac, had given to his son Joseph. And the well there was traditionally called Jacob's Well. And uh, that still exists today, although like many of the great places, the great biblical places in the Middle East, it's covered over by a church. But you can visit it today. But Jacob's Well was in Samaritan territory. Now, the Samaritans were the cousins of the Jews. And as you know, a family squabble can be more passionate than one between distant, distant enemies who aren't related at all. An analogy for us might be the Catholic-Protestant divide in Northern Ireland. They had a dispute, the Jews and the Samaritans, about where you would truly worship God. The Jews said, only in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, at the temple. The Samaritans said, no, no, here, in Mount Gerizim. And it was a pretty bitter struggle, so that the Jews did not even share things with Samaritan, something the woman will bring up in the story. And so what unfolds in this tale is extremely controversial. Jesus, the Jew, tired from his journey, sits by a well in the heat of the midday sun. We hear it's about noon, while his friends go into town to buy some food. He's a Jewish man on his own, sitting there, sweating. And while he's there, a lone woman comes to draw water at the well. And Jesus asks her, give me a drink. Now, why had this woman come out in the middle of the day when it was the custom for the women to draw water early in the morning or at dusk? Why is she on her own in the heat of the midday sun? Well, for some reason, she's a pariah. For some reason, she's an outcast. The other women won't talk to her. 
So why does this Jewish man, on, on his own, risk scandal on a whole number of levels by asking her for a drink, this woman on her own? Well, that's what the woman comes out herself in, and says in verse 9. Why do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Think of the divides that Jesus crosses here in this one question, with this one request. It's a, it's a religious divide, isn't it? A Jew asking Samaritan for water. It's a racial divide. It's a gender divide with the possibility of sexual scandal in the air. And it's a status divide. She's an outcast and he's a well-known and respected teacher travelling around with his entourage. But if you think about it, it's classic Jesus, isn't it? If we know anything about him, it's that he reaches out to people, whoever and whatever they are. We see him mixing with tax collectors and sinners, with fallen women and with disabled people, with the untouchables and the unreachables, the poor and the pompous, the Romans, the Greeks and the Jews. And when he reaches out to them, when he reaches out to us, he does it in a very physical way, doesn't he? He does it with his own body. He does not keep his distance because of their sins or because of their social status. He eats and he drinks with them. He is not too proud even to ask an outcast Samaritan woman for a drink of water in the hot sun. As the Son of God, he is unmistakably human with the thirsts of a human body. And that means for us, that there's nothing in our humanity that's foreign to the Son of God. Jesus shares with us what it's like to live in this two-two-sullied flesh. He knows our neediness. He too had the longings and the limitations of a body and a soul. He sits at the well and asks the woman for a drink. And we are reminded that later in John's Gospel, he will ask again for a drink, saying, as he was dying upon the cross, meeting our every need, I thirst. And that is a hint of what Jesus means in his reply to the woman in verse 10. These great words, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, he would have given you living water. And in saying this, Jesus turns the conversation on its head. It starts as a simple request for water, but now it's become something else. If the woman had been able to recognize this man and could see God's gift in him, if she really knew what God was like, what God was prepared to do, how generous God is, then she would be asking him for water, yes, but not just any water, for living water. Now, since the days of the Exodus, bread and water had been symbols for the way that God provides for his people, lavishly and plenteously. In the days of Moses in the desert, in those dry days, the people had cried out for water, and they got water from the rock when Moses struck it with his staff. But the needs of their bodies were a picture of the needs of their soul. Remember that great verse from the Old Testament, Man, hum, human beings shall not live 
by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We survive, we live, not simply physically, but we need the spiritual sustenance that God gives us, that he is prepared to give us in his word. Their spiritual thirst was to be met by the God who gave them physical water. And that was living water, not just the physical water that flows onto the dry land and makes it green, but living water, which is the life-giving presence of God in us and for us, flowing out onto us, assuring us that we have in him what we ultimately need, giving us the security of his strength, giving us the assurance of his forgiveness. Reminding us of his extraordinary love. Now, if this woman, with her spiritual thirst, trying so hard to have it quenched all she can in her love life, had realized who it was who sat in front of her, she would have given up seeking anything and anywhere else and would have asked instead this man in front of her for living Water. We'll hear more about this living water next week as the dialogue continues. But in the tragedy of the drought, we're desperately looking around for solutions, aren't we? We are proposing to desalinate, desalinate the sea, or to build more large dams, or to irrigate differently. In the end, we are just dependent upon the rains. In our spiritual drought, we are also desperately searching for solutions. But the difference is that for our spiritual thirst, there's an enormous reservoir full to the brim of living water there for us to drink. In Jesus, there is a never-ending supply of exactly what we need. The tragedy is not that there is no spiritual water. The tragedy is that we refuse to drink from it. The tragedy is that we seek it where it can't be found and forget that all it takes is to simply ask and we will have in abundance. Jesus will give us what we seek if only we ask. We will find in him rest for our weary souls and comfort for our hearts. And there's nothing simply abstract about this or vague or waffly or far off. It's real. Recently, Australian actress Anna McGann, um, she uh, features in this month's Eternity magazine. You can find this in the foyer. There's an interview with her here. Uh, she's an actress. She's been in um, uh, Underbelly, remember Underbelly, and in uh, The Picnic of Hanging Rock, and in The Dr. Blake Mysteries, and continues to have a role in that. She's published a book called Metanoia, a word which means change of mind. Now, from uh, in her earlier life, from the outside, she had a great life. She had fame and success and creativity, and people were envious of her. But she says, I hated how I looked and how I felt. I hated my vessel, my body, and no matter where life took me, from my psychology degree to acting school to the sets of exciting acting jobs, I felt the burden of my body continue to weigh heavy on the earth. She tried in this endless and restless search. She tried drugs and sex and success and everything she thought would fulfill her. But then one night, alone in her hotel room, she picked up a Bible. You know how Bibles are in hotel room drawers? She picked it up 
and read it. And she says, I expected when I read it to meet a Jesus who is on the side of Christians and of the people that I at that time didn't identify with. People like us, perhaps. When I first read the Bible, it was a Gideon Bible that I knew would be in the drawer of the hotel room I was staying in, and I read it to convince myself that it wasn't true. I was so rejected and broken, and this person, Jesus, just disarmed me because it was so personal. As soon as I started to read it, I was like, well, this is the story I know I believe. This person sort of came out of the page and was on my side and was my friend. I felt this deep alliance from him and acceptance, like everything that you are, the entire mess that you are, exactly as you are right now, I am with you. I felt like I had an ally in Jesus when I didn't have anybody on my side. This could have been the story of the woman at the well. And like the woman at the well, Anna McGann, amongst many, many others, would discover that Jesus pours living water into our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.